0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, the book of Romans, chapter 5. Well, as we study Romans chapter 5 today, we should pause to remember just who Paul is addressing his thoughts to it is to the Gentile and Jewish believers living in the capital city of the Roman Empire Rome now to put a finer point on it this was not an open letter to all believers everywhere they might live What he was teaching them certainly could apply to all believers everywhere as the conditions arose, but that was not the intent of the letter. While all sections of his letter to the Romans are meant for both Jewish and Gentile Roman believers, Some sections are more carefully aimed at the Jewish believers, other times more aimed at the Gentile believers. Now, just how Jewish believers might understand what Paul had to say could be quite different from how the Gentile believers perceived it. This is because Jewish believers had a fairly in-depth understanding of Judaism and their own Hebraic heritage. And so they grasped the many nuances of their their religion and their history that would not have been realized by Gentiles. Much of what Paul had to say in the book of Romans would have flown over the heads of the Gentile believers of Rome. Their only hope was that knowledgeable Jewish believers would explain it to them. You know, it's ironic that today's Gentile believers are in the same boat as the Roman Gentile believers of Paul's era. The difference is that back then it seems that the Gentile believers sought out, they were happy to have the tutoring and insight of Jewish believers to help them understand Scripture. But today, for many centuries actually, that's not the case. Gentile believers usually think that we can understand the Old and New Testaments with little or no knowledge of Judaism or of Jewish history or culture. And if we're honest, we can see where that mindset has led the Christian faith. So let us determine to first admit to ourselves that that the Bible is an ancient Hebrew document written in the context of various stages of Hebrew culture and that until we take the time to learn the nuances of their culture and their religion we're going to have a skewed or an incomplete understanding of what the Hebrew writers of the Bible meant by what they said now as we get ready to read Romans chapter 5, please recall that chapter 4 was mostly a midrash on Abraham and it ended with Paul comparing Yeshua to Abraham. Now, Paul's conclusion was that while Abraham is indeed the biological father of the Jewish people more accurately of the Hebrew people <clears throat> Abraham is also the spiritual father to Gentile believers in Christ. Thus, Gentile believers are as much legitimate seed of Abraham as are Jews, just in slightly different, in a slightly different sense, because it does not involve membership in the Jewish nation. Paul's words <laughs> Well, they would have thrilled the Gentile believers in Rome. But it would have had a different effect upon the Roman Jews. Some Jews would have had mixed feelings about such a notion. Others would have been downright furious at the thought and disagreed vehemently with Paul. So what we, we will see <clears throat> is that Romans chapter 5, when it's taken as a whole can only be taken as a summation of everything that Paul has said and discussed in chapters 1-4 through and what it means for believers even though there's going to be some new information added so open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 Romans chapter 5 if you have a complete Jewish Bible it's on page 1407 1407 Follow along with me, please. So, since we have come to be righteous by God on account of our trust, let us continue to have shalom with God through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Also, through Him and on the ground of our trust, we have gained access to this grace in which we stand, so let us boast about the hope of experiencing God's glory. But not only that... Let us boast in our troubles, because we know that trouble produces endurance, endurance uh, endurance produces character, character produces hope. And this hope does not let us down, because God's love for us has already been poured out in our hearts through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time the Messiah died on behalf of ungodly people. Now, it's a rare event when someone gives up his life, even for the sake of somebody righteous. Although possibly for a truly good person, one might have the courage to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that the Messiah died on our behalf while we were still sinners. Therefore, since we have now come to be considered righteous by means of his bloody sacrificial death, how much more will we be delivered through him from the anger of God's judgment? For if we were reconciled with God through his son's death when we were enemies, how much more will we be delivered by his life now that we're reconciled? And not only will we be delivered in the future, but we are boasting about God right now because He has acted through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, through whom we have already received that reconciliation. Here's how it works. It was through one individual that sin entered the world, and through sin, death, and in this way, death passed through the whole human race in as much as everyone sinned. Sin was indeed present in the world before Torah was given, but sin's not counted as such when there's no Torah. Nevertheless, death ruled from Adam until Moshe, even over those whose sinning was not exactly like Adam's violation of a direct commandment. In this, Adam prefigured the one who was to come. But the free gift. It's not like the offense. For if, because of one man's offense, many died, then how much more has God's grace, that is, the gracious gift of one man, Yeshua the Messiah, overflowed to many. No, the free gift is not like what resulted from one man sinning, for from one sinner came judgment that brought condemnation. But the free gift came after many offenses, and it brought acquittal. For if, because of the offense of one man, death ruled through that one man, how much more will those receiving the overflowing grace, that is the gift of being considered righteous, rule in life through the one man, Yeshua the Messiah. In other words, just as it was through one offense (coughs) that all people came under condemnation, so also it is through one righteous act that all people come to be considered righteous. For just as, though, just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners, so also through the disobedience of the other man many will be made righteous. And the Torah came into the picture so that the offense would proliferate. But where sin proliferated, grace proliferated even more. This happened so that just as sin ruled by means of death, so also grace might rule through causing people to be considered righteous, so that they might have eternal life through Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord. Now, let me tell you, there's about two truckloads of theology in there. Excuse me. I'm having it dumped right back there right at this very moment you know I think the reason that most of you are studying with seated Abraham Torah class is because you want a better understanding of who God is you want to know what his word to us is intended to impart now I'm hoping that you are also seeing To better understand certain terms and certain expressions that are in common, if not daily, use among Christians. Terms like sin, death, even through Christ, like I can do anything through Christ. You know, we seldom stop and ask ourselves some very basic questions about exactly what those terms mean. And equally seldom do we ever hear them defined in the church or a synagogue setting. The terms are used and then we're expected to know. The result is that believers have a somewhat hazy understanding of those terms and expressions that are so central to our faith. Or we have our own understanding of their meaning unaware that to other Christians or to the unbelieving population in general those terms can have quite a different meaning Now we're going to work on remedying that but you're going to need to be patient and attentive as important as understanding these biblical terms is they are not necessarily easy to explain thus right off the bat In verse 1, we see Paul say that we have indeed become righteous by our trust in God so then, we need to maintain our newly found peace with God through our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Our complete Jewish Bible uses the word Shalom. Instead of peace, English Bibles most often translate Shalom as meaning peace. but what does peace what does Shalom mean biblically? now typically peace with someone in this case peace with God peace with God is thought of in military terms as in peace instead of hostility. However, because that kind of peace is seldom spoken of in, in scriptures, especially when speaking from a spiritual aspect we need to expand the meaning from peace to well-being because that more closely approximates the meaning of the Hebrew concept of shalom. Peace is is not meant, in verse 1, as only a cessation of hostilities. It is meant as our receiving overall well-being from the Lord. This is a type of well-being that can only come from God, and it gives us a lasting comfort, a sense of protection and uh, protection and devotion, a return to wholeness. It also involves aspects of grace. Now many commentators will argue that indeed the term peace is meant as a cessation of hostilities between God and man because peace is the result of reconciliation. But that doesn't entirely dovetail very well with the character of God. See, the Father is not a hostile God. And reconciliation doesn't always have to be between enemies. He is a God who loves His creatures, even when we don't love Him. He might even, we might even be hostile towards Him. Otherwise, how do you account for God giving up His Son for the sake of those who are against Him. Even when He punishes humans, it's not done with a sense of hostility. It's done with a sense of justice. God's wrath is much less about hostility, much more about the just consequence of rebellion. You know, in a court of law, when a person commits a crime and they're judged guilty and they go to prison, that's not about judicial hostility. It's about proportional justice. Therefore, it cannot be that shalom with God, peace with God, in this context, mean only that enmity... Between man and God is over, for the believer anyway. It must also mean that upon God righteousing us, justifying us, we receive the divine gift of shalom, provided we continue to abide in Him. But then we are told that this shalom with God happens, and here it comes, through our Lord. Jesus the Messiah. What does that mean? Through our Lord is a kind of New Testament shorthand that Paul particularly favors. Back in Romans 3.25 we were told that Yeshua is our mercy seat through his faithfulness. Through Yeshua's faithfulness. Now we have already defined faithfulness is the tangible good works and deeds of a person who has faith and whatever so the phrase through our lord or through christ more means this we can now access god the father by means of our trust In the perfection, the works, the deeds, the willing sacrifice of Yeshua who atoned for our sins. Now since that's certainly way too many words to remember, certainly to use when speaking about how we obtain our peace, our shalom with God, then perhaps we could just better reduce that down to simply through the works and deeds of our Lord Yeshua. That much better captures Paul's meaning through the works and deeds of Yeshua our Messiah. Now verse 2 proves this definition that I've given you to be the case because what we have is Paul providing a little more information about what through Yeshua or through Christ means and what it provides and since it is that it is our trust in the works of another in the works of Christ that has given us sh- this shalom with God then the only boasting that we ought to do is in the expression of our hope of experiencing God's glory now here we have two more terms that need some definition boasting and God's glory. The complete Jewish Bible uses the word boast here, and I think that's pretty dubious. I don't think is a good choice. The Greek word it's attempting to translate is kalkomi. kalkomi. Many English versions translate that word as rejoice or exult. In fact, sometimes it's even translated, interestingly, as glory. However, when we see the term, the glory of God, the Greek word that is translated as glory in that case is always the Greek word doxa. Doxa. Now doxa means splendor, or it means an exalted state. So since we have two different Greek words that can both be legitimately translated into English as glory translators do not want the passage to read so let us glory about the hope of experiencing God's glory. That sounds odd a little bit confusing so they usually choose a different construction and they replace the first glory with the word exult or rejoice the complete Jewish Bible chose boast I don't like that too much so as used here to say that we should rejoice in what? rejoice in God's glory means we should celebrate or have great rejoicing in God's splendor yet what is Paul actually getting at in this passage? What is God's glory? What is God's splendor? Paul is not speaking about splendor in the sense of how human kings appear in all their regal clothing or their aristocratic bearing. He is saying that as believers we are to look forward to that divine illumination of the wholeness, the perfection of our humanity that comes only from the divine radiance of being in God's presence. Do any of you recall the book of Exodus and what happened to Moses after he spent a lot of time in God's presence? he literally radiated light or better, illumination when he came down from Mount Sinai. The radiance emitting from his face so confused and frightened the people that Moses took to wearing a veil when he was around the Israelites. So God's glory in relation to humans involves a recovery of this original destiny of mankind before Adam fell from grace. All wrapped up in this huge concept of God's glory, this passage speaks of the restoration of human beings that will even be immeasurably enhanced beyond the original state of Adam into something that more resembles Yeshua's exalted state as he ascended to heaven that's what it's going to be like for us but in verse 3 Paul says something troubling take a look at it because honestly What he's saying doesn't usually turn out that way. He says we ought to rejoice in our tribulations and our troubles. Because we know, he says, well we know that tribulation produces endurance. Endurance grows our character. Growing character produces hope. Really? Folks, not very many who experience great tribulation in their lives wind up with more hope. In fact, Job, as one of the godliest men who ever lived, gave up hope. And he mischaracterized God once his troubles just overwhelmed him. It's more likely for humans who experience great tribulation to speak against God, or even to abandon Him. You know, a sad revelation for me personally has been that as I've met a number of Holocaust victims over my many years of traveling to Israel most of them have given up belief in God due to their horrific experiences of course what Paul is speaking about is the outcome of tribulations with those who have a true abiding trust in God through the faithfulness of Messiah Yeshua because without that trust the sad result that I just spoke about is far more likely but with that trust in God that indeed for a confident believer tribulation will achieve endurance endurance will achieve character and character will produce hope but now here's another question for you what hope is it that Paul is speaking about? Hope. I mean, is it that our trials and tribulations will be overturned? Maybe they'll be solved? uh, Ended? Or is it that happy ending that, especially my wife, but we all want in novels and in movies? In the book of Acts, that's why we studied it first, in the book of Acts, When Paul spoke about hope, it always had to do with resurrection from the dead. Always. And there's no reason to think that he means something different here. Our hope is resurrection from the dead. Death has always been terrifying and an unavoidable prospect for humans. That's why many cultures invented elaborate death cults. Cults like the Egyptians who built pyramids furnished them with lavish items for their pharaohs to enjoy in the land of the dead. This, of course, was pagan fantasy. But the Lord God solved this dilemma through Yeshua. The first fruits... Of this hope of a resurrection by promising that all humans, all humans, are going to be resurrected from the dead at some point in time. The problem is, most are going to be resurrected to face God as the judge who's going to condemn them for all eternity. But for those who trust God through Yeshua's faithfulness, we will be resurrected into eternal life and shalom. That is the hope that believers possess that no one else does or can. And that is the hope that Paul is speaking of here. Paul's kind of hope is essentially the end result of a chain of events in the life of a believer. Now, please notice in verse 6 how Paul speaks of when we were still powerless, that Messiah died on behalf of ungodly people, he says. So, Paul's not only including himself, the we includes all believers. He makes no distinction here between Jewish and Gentile believers in this regard. But we must also notice that he essentially makes synonyms of the terms we and ungodly. See, there's something hidden deep here that we need to acknowledge. Paul is saying that belief in God does not keep us from being ungodly. Before Paul accepted Christ, he believed in the God of Israel. Before the believing Jews of Rome accepted Christ, they believed in the God of Israel. We can believe in God and still be helpless, powerless, sinful, and by Paul's definition, ungodly. For Paul, ungodly does not mean... That you don't have some level of belief in God. It means that your behavior proves you don't obey Him. That's what it means. That's being ungodly. And as unlikely as it might sound, says Paul, this is exactly the kind of people... Oh, here's the irony of all time. This is the kind of people that Messiah died for. Now, that thought might sound a little bit radical to us, except that Paul's masters said the same thing many years earlier in Luke 5 30 through 32. The Parshim, the Pharisees, and their Torah teachers protested indignantly against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors, with sinners? it was Yeshua who answered them. He said, the ones who need a doctor aren't the healthy, it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to turn to God from their sins. Paul acknowledges that it sounds entirely unlikely that one person would give up his own life for another even if that person who is in danger is a pretty decent person is righteous although it's slightly more imaginable if that good person was very special but by allowing his own son to die on behalf of sinners Paul says ungodly people bad people bad people God demonstrated a love that's unheard of among humans. See, this validates my contention that God is not a God of hostility. We don't have a hostile God. So you know what? We need to be really careful how it is that we characterize Him. So as a result of this fact, Paul says the following in verse 9. Take a look at it. I think that verse can be best explained by the words of Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans. Just listen to this as you kind of look at the words of verse 9. If God has already done the more difficult thing, which is to reconcile and and justify unworthy sinners, how much more can He be depended upon to accomplish the easier thing? to save from in times wrath those who have been brought into such a relationship with him. See, that is, it was a monumental undertaking by God to bring about redemption for evil mankind by giving up his perfect son's life in exchange for theirs, in exchange for ours so now that he's done that well it goes without saying that since the purpose for Yeshua's death was to save well then those who have benefited from that awesome act are going to be protected from God's wrath so redemption through Christ and being saved from God's wrath comes as a package deal aren't you glad? man I am best two-for-one sale in history. Verse 10 now is parallel to verse 9 and it demonstrates one of the two most fundamental characteristics that identifies God's nature. Now we talked about these characteristics a couple of lessons ago. First, God creates everything from nothing. Characteristic number two, God brings life from the dead. Here Paul emphasizes that the way God brought new and eternal life to sinners was by means of the death of Yeshua. Paul now moves to a section of chapter 5 that begins in verse 12, ends in verse 21. Now, while Chapter Five can be said to be as a whole a conclusion and a summation for Romans chapters one through four, verses twelve through twenty-one of Chapter Five can be said to be a conclusion for what Paul has just said in verses one through eleven. And these ten verses, twelve through twenty-one, leads us into a theological minefield that we could probably spend a month dissecting but we won't one of the most controversial aspects of this section is that it approaches the subject of what theologians call the doctrine of original sin and while Christianity has several different viewpoints on this subject, this spills over into the even more basic concept of what is sin the Jewish viewpoint is altogether different and so Judaism and Christianity have been at odds on this delicate matter since Paul's day in fact since the issue of sin and where it came from was already well formulated within Judaism by Paul's era I can assure you that when some of the Jews of Rome read this part of the letter they probably set the letter down and read no further so sensitive is that subject so at odds with Paul was Paul's statement against what Judaism traditionally believed and yet we won't hear Paul using the terms Jews and Gentiles in these verses. Rather, the scope of Paul's comments is universal. Paul is dealing with all mankind in general without distinction of any kind. Everyone simply falls under the category of human being. The way the world was before Abraham was set apart for God now further, after speaking about how Christ's death brought hope to the Jewish people and how that occurred while they were even yet sinners bad people, ungodly people Paul now begins to explain this positive effect that this same event was going to have on the whole world and to flesh this out he points towards a similarity between Yeshua and Adam So, Paul first used Abraham, now he uses Adam to explain the Gospel. Why it was needed, how it works. So much for the Gospel being a New Testament innovation. Now, without doubt, the theme that pulls these ten verses together is that Christ's faithfulness to die on the cross, was needed to counteract Adam's unfaithfulness that first sent humanity into the abyss of sin. Thus says verse 12, It was that one person, Adam, brought sin into this world, and with sin came death. And once sin and death appeared on earth, it propagated itself throughout every human being from that time forth everyone would sin so everyone would die this verse is so enormous in its theological implications that perhaps the only comparable verse in the Bible is Genesis one one: in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth The impact of those first words of the Torah is incalculable. And no doubt debate about the precise meaning of those words is going to continue until Yeshua returns. It is that same way with this Romans 5 verse 12, at least it is among Christians. This verse, you see, enters us into the realm of the doctrine of original sin. How one interprets these words has a great deal to do with how a person might understand redemption. And it certainly affects our understanding of how sin and death ever entered this world in the first place. Now most Christians are caught off guard when they hear that there is no such thing as one universally accepted doctrine of original sin within Christianity. Whichever one of the several original sin doctrines one might choose, it in no way lines up with Jewish thought on the matter. Two different worlds. Now, I'm, I'm going to rely mostly on the fine work that Dr. David Stern put together in order to give you kind of a Reader's Digest version. Of explaining the various views of original sin, not necessarily because it's the best, but it, but rather because Doctor Stern explains it in an organized and a concise way that doesn't go too deep, doesn't get too technical, and so it's I think suitable for our purposes. Now I hope you're ready, as I warned you at the beginning, as I warn you every week. I want you to focus on this important issue because what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam? Well, that's about as foundational of a faith issue as it gets when it comes to both Judaism and Christianity. Depending on what one believes actually happened in the Garden has a significant effect on how we might view sin, redemption, death and salvation. So the first thing we must do is to define some terms so that we're all on the same page. Now I'm going to define those terms using familiar evangelical Christian words and definitions as a baseline. The doctrine of original sin is exactly that. It is the title of a man-made doctrine. You will not find the words original sin in the Bible. In fact, it isn't until the fourth chapter of Genesis that the word sin is even used in the Torah. As attributed to Adam, original sin consists of two pieces. The first piece is called original pollution. The second piece is called Original Guilt. Now don't get too hung up on the titles. I didn't choose them. Rather they're the standard terms that theologians have long used to deal with this subject. Original pollution refers to that sinful state, sinful condition into which every human being is born. This sinful state of everyone also gives everyone a sinful nature that makes it utterly impossible for us to follow God faithfully to do what is good and right in His eyes. <clears throat> Therefore, it's original guilt that condemns us all original guilt is what makes every human being born fully deserving of God's wrath and our death. And this is so from the second we're born. We're all born guilty. Now we can call inf- uh, infants innocent. They're not. Infants have not yet had a chance to commit behavioral sins they're still guilty they're guilty of the original guilt because they were born with the original pollution that all stemmed from Adam excuse me now let's get even more basic why are these sin terms called original because, first of all we all share the same original root of humanity at Adam but two it is also original <clears throat> since pollution and guilt are present in every human at our personal origin, at our birth perhaps even at our conception and finally third It's original because this pollution and guilt themselves, these two things themselves, are the origin, they're the root cause of our evil inclinations and our sinful deeds that ultimately defile us as human persons. So the term original applies in three different but complementary senses. So what exactly was the original sin? Well, the standard answer is that Adam, encouraged by Eve, I'm not going to leave that part out, Adam ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. However, the underlying essence of that act was siding with Satan and rebelling against God just as Satan suggested he do Adam substituted his own personal will for God's will Adam did this from pride from unbelief and he shared Satan's desire to put himself on the same plane of being as God It is this sin, or perhaps better, this bent to apostatize from God, which has been passed along to every human from Adam and for which we are all held accountable by God. But at the same time, we did not share the response. we do not share the responsibility for eating the forbidden fruit. Only Adam did that. Now let's even get more basic what does sin mean? what does sin mean in the Bible? sin has three basic meanings number one it refers to our wrong deeds and actions our bad behavior our immoral thoughts immoral actions that's sin number two It refers to our sinful inclination. See, that I'm talking about sin is actually a moral defect in us. It urges us to choose that which we know is morally wrong. And three, sin refers to our sinful natures. That means that our very nature as human beings right down to our DNA is corrupted with evil thus an evil inclination in all humans is inevitable and thus so are the evil deeds that our evil inclinations demand that we do well so how do we all inherit this original sin? propagation of the species if you're a descendant of Adam I think I only see descendants of Adam in here You have received the original sin in your genes and so you will transmit the same to the genes of whatever children you spawn and so on and so on forever. There is no fix for this in human terms. What's the consequence of our inheritance of original sin? Death. So death should not be seen, death should not be talked about as the natural, God-ordained end of life. Death is unnatural. As a matter of fact, it's divine punishment. But death is more than the physical death of these bodies. It also includes spiritual death and eternal death. Spiritual death means our separation from God spiritual death that is present in us at the time of our physical death brings on eternal death. On the other hand, a person, while still living, can be in a state of spiritual death but can repent, turn from his or her sins, trust in God through Yeshua, and then at his or her physical death, they will not suffer eternal death now there's other versions of the doctrine of original sin within christianity and we're not going to discuss them all but briefly here are six more does that give you some idea just how fractured christianity can be in its core beliefs six more first, oh they all have names great names number one the Augustinian version this says we are born with both original pollution and original guilt but more we are participants in Adam's original sin of eating the forbidden fruit therefore we die because we actually personally sinned the original sin Second version, the immediate imputation version. This claims that we have original guilt only because of the original pollution of Adam. But we do not share in Adam's original pollution or in his sinful act of eating the forbidden fruit. We die, however, because we have a sinful nature. The third version is called the federal version. We are born with original pollution but not with original guilt because we did not share in Adam's original sin of eating the forbidden fruit. It is not that we are born with a sinful nature but rather it is at the age of accountability sin becomes imputed to us, reckoned by God upon us because Adam was our human representative in the Garden of Eden. Version number 4 the uncondemnable vitiosity version this says that the original pollution that we're all born with doesn't also make us guilty and that we are certainly not guilty of Adam's sin of eating the forbidden fruit we have guilt before God only when we commit sinful deeds death is not the result of sin but rather it is the natural end of a human life span as always intended by God And fifth, the Arminian Methodist version. This says that even though a person is born physically and intellectually depraved, we can choose another way. We can actually be obedient to the Holy Spirit as is. We become guilty before God only when we cooperate with our sinful nature and then commit actual sinful deeds. Therefore death happens not because death has been passed on to us by Adam and not as the penalty that Adam received for his sin but because the death penalty has been imputed upon us by God. Then we have the Pelagian version. This says that man is born as an innocent infant and that from birth we are able to obey God. However, due to the bad examples we see all around us, we eventually commit sinful deeds. So I sin because of you guys. Nice try, huh? We then die because we sin and we suffer spiritual and eternal death not because of anything Adam did but because we all imitate Adam by our sinning so we suffer the same consequence as Adam death So, what does Judaism believe about the original sin? Generally it does not accept a doctrine or concept of original sin There is no such thing in Judaism as original sin Judaism believes that what Adam did in the garden was Adam's sin alone has no bearing on his billions of descendants Jews believe in free will to the point that a Jew rejoices when he can prove his ethical, moral fiber in his personal battle against temptation and sin. In fact, Jews are taught to see themselves as stronger than their evil inclinations, and so they're able to avoid sin altogether if they sincerely strive for righteousness. So the Jewish view is that humans are created essentially good like Adam in the image of God there is no sin nature woven into our DNA but in order to give us free will and free choice then every human is born with an evil inclination and a good inclination and it's up to every human to choose which one we're going to serve now, some of the argument that Judaism uses to deny the Christian doctrine of an original sin is, as I told you earlier, the word sin isn't even used in the Bible until Genesis 4 7. Genesis 4 1 through 7 says this The man had sexual relations with Havah's wife, she conceived, gave birth to Cain. And said, I have acquired a man from Adonai. And in addition, she gave birth to his brother Havel, Abel. Havel kept sheep, and while Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought an offering to Adonai from the produce of the soil. And Havel too brought from the firstborn of his sheep, including their fat. Adonai accepted Havel and his offering, but did not accept Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And Adonai said to Cayenne, why are you angry? Why are you so downcast? If you're doing what's good, shouldn't you hold your head up high? And if you don't do what's good, sin is crouching at the door. It wants you, but you can rule over it. Notice those words. Sin is crouching at the door, it wants you, but you can rule over it. So Judaism certainly acknowledges that committing behavioral sins is a danger that lurks around every corner, but they see it as possible, even expected by God, that humans can rule over their sin. Thus Jews do not accept the idea of an original sin from which all humanity is held universally captive. My point of this little excursion is not to recommend to you a precise version or doctrine of original sin, or to dissuade you frankly from any particular view, but rather to acquaint you with one of the major reasons it can be so very difficult to convince especially especially the religious Jew to accept a savior to pay for their sins and to save them from their sin natures they believe they do not have a sin nature stemming from adam and also that they have every ability to not sin if they work hard enough at it. So their fate is, in essence, in their own hands. Now my purpose is also to show you that Paul's version of original sin, as many of us interpret it, is not the only one within Christianity. So don't be surprised when you encounter other believers who disagree with you over this issue but then also don't be surprised when because of their view of original sin of how they think of Christ and and salvation because it's going to be different depending on your viewpoint Of the original sin. Whether it exists, it doesn't, or it's any one of several. Okay? We'll continue with Romans chapter 5 next time.